Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. To me, like filibuster, all of that is mutable compared to climate crisis. These are all systems that can be changed. And I know that sounds really easy, and I don't assume that it will be easy, but I also don't think we have any other choice. Hello, welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My name is David Roberts, and I'm a staff writer at Vox, focusing on climate change, uh, energy, and politics. My thanks to Ezra for letting me sit in today. Our guest today is Rihanna Gunn-Wright. If you haven't heard that name yet, you probably will soon. She is the primary policy architect behind the much-discussed, much-criticized, and very much misunderstood Green New Deal. A few months ago, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York and Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts introduced a non-binding resolution to Congress. The Green New Deal resolution lays out a series of goals and principles meant to guide an intensive two-year process of policy development. The idea is to have a legislative package that achieves these goals and abides by these principles ready to go for 2020 when Democrats retake power, or so they hope. Among the goals, completely decarbonize the U.S. economy. Among the principles, do it in a way that employs everyone who wants a job and protects everyone's housing and health care. Needless to say, it has been controversial. Many critics jumped straight to attacking the Green New Deal on policy grounds, despite the fact that it's not policy yet. Many have characterized it as unrealistic or pie in the sky because it includes social goals alongside carbon reduction goals. Many, especially on the right, have projected all sorts of fantasies and fallacies onto it that are nowhere in the resolution's actual language. It does not, for instance, ban cows. No one has actually seen the policy itself, though, because it doesn't exist yet. It is being assembled by New Consensus, a think tank that spun off from Justice Democrats, the group that recruited and ran AOC, among others. At New Consensus, Rihanna Gunwright is in charge of the Green New Deal project. She's a Yale graduate and a Rhodes Scholar, formerly the policy director for the Michigan gubernatorial campaign of Democrat Abdul El-Sayed. El-Sayed ultimately lost, but his campaign is remembered for its innovative, thorough, and thoughtful policy proposals. Much of that was gun right. Now she's being called upon to do something similar, to put together some sensible but ambitious plans, but on a vastly larger scale. Meeting Green New Deal goals would mean nothing less than a transformation of the entire U.S. economy. 
Saving the Earth is a lot to take on for one Chicago native. I've really been looking forward to chatting with her about it, and it was just as fun and fascinating as I expected. We talked about how she's approaching this daunting task, who she's talking to, how she keeps track of it all. We discussed what makes policies stick and endure even through uh, uh, the swings of polarization in U.S. politics. And we talked about why social goals like uh, health care and housing and job guarantees belong with climate policy, belong with carbon policy. It was a, a, a fascinating uh, discussion. I wish it could have gone on longer. Uh, as always, you can email the show at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Uh, without further ado, here is Rihanna Gunwright. Rihanna Gunwright, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, we have so, so, so much to talk about. But I saw I saw on Twitter you wanted to talk about Captain Marvel. I, I took my kids to see it. We love it. The cat is awesome. It's so good. I love Captain Marvel. I also love superhero movies for deeply personal reasons. And Captain Marvel, when the the moment where she like realizes that she has the power and other people right, she told stands her, back up. yeah, and I was like, oh my god, yes, no one controls your power, not even uh... neoliberalism, Rihanna. <laughs> Nice segue. All right. Uh, I would love to talk about movies. I would love to talk about movies with you, but we do not live in that world. No. We live in uh, a much worse world. So we have to talk about your plan <laughs> yes. to yes. save the world. So the Green New Deal. I want to get into some policy details later for sure, but let's start with a little bit about uh, process. I think a lot of people are interested in uh, sort of who you are and, and and exactly what you're doing and how you expect this process that you're involved in to play out. So let's start with you. The The Green New Deal resolution sets out these sort of crazy ambitious goals that are going to require transformation across the economy. And you're just one person. <laughs> you've, you know, you've said before, you've, you've emphasized before, obviously, you're not just sitting down with a blank sheet of paper to write <laughs> this plan yourself. Obviously, you're you're consulting with experts and trying to assemble uh, uh, expert knowledge. But even even that on something of this scale is a daunting task. So what uh, what makes you up for this? What have you learned over your life? What did you learn on the Al Sayed campaign, uh, particularly that sort of you think prepares you for this massive act of uh, synthesis? Someone actually asked me this the other day. They were like, uh, when did you figure out you were the leader that was needed? I was like, I didn't. <laughs> I really didn't. Um, and I still don't know. Sometimes I just feel like I was the person who showed up and was like dumb enough to be like, yeah, yeah, That's how I'll, history is I'll made. work on this. Yeah, sure. And then I have this thing where like I take risks without recognizing that they're risks at the time. And then it takes me like two weeks and I'm like, ah, <laughs> what did I do? Um, so that is on a personal level is it's kind of what happened. But I think it's actually playing out. And I am finding that I am at least in my estimation, well-suited for this work. And I think it's for uh, a couple reasons. 
which are largely sort of encapsulated on the Abdul campaign. So one is that I've actually worked across a lot of policy areas. So I started off in welfare policy. My senior thesis was actually about representations of Black women and how they fit into desired uh, welfare reforms uh, that were influenced by what the political economy was required. Because what you'll notice in the U.S. is that uh, when sort of political economy or ideology changes, welfare is sort of like the canary in the coal mine. It's what people either expand first or soon or make a big deal out of expanding, or it's the thing that they collapse and make a big deal out of collapsing. Um, so I started there. I started working on welfare policy, uh, went on to work on higher ed policy, but from the vantage point of non-traditional students. And that, that I was at a small think tank, the Institute for Women's Policy Research. So I also worked on like career pathways and wage gap and a bunch of other things. I went to grad school, actually wrote my master's thesis on policy formation in municipal police departments. So I did field work in Chicago and Philly at the police departments and sort of wrote about how police and the way think about crime, the genesis of crime, and how that um, influences the the ways that their departments decide to police uh, violent crime. Went back and worked at higher ed, went to the Detroit Health Department, worked on uh, health-related policy, public health-related policy, which actually involved quite a lot of environmental justice work. Detroit has a lot of environmental justice issues. There's a refinery in the city. There's an incinerator in the middle of the city that burns uh, trash, 80% of which comes from neighboring suburbs with higher median incomes. And so I started working on that. And then on the Abdul campaign, we put out 250 pages of policy across 11 policy sort of areas or buckets. And I managed that whole um, portfolio. And so I've worked across a lot of sort of jurisdictions and I think have come to understand sort of how the systems and the systems in those jurisdictions relate to one another. And then also on the Abdul campaign, this is like I'm sure other people have done it, but one of the reasons that New Consensus was actually interested in me was that, one, I take an intersectional approach to policy. So I'm always asking, like, because uh, most policy, you have to answer sort of two questions fundamentally. What problem are you solving and who are you solving it for? And actually, those are way more complicated questions than we think, right? Problem definition, often a lot of policy goes off the rails because the folks making the policy define the problems different than the folks experiencing the problem. And there's like quite a divide, especially when you add in like uh, differences in identity. So race, class, et cetera, the distance between policymakers often and constituents actually can grow. Um, and so that's one thing. And then who are you solving it for? Most policy looks at like one broad group. Um, but the fact is within any grouping, say women, for instance, uh, there are sort of subgroups. There are smaller populations that make up that larger population. And the problem that you're seeing could actually have different root causes depending on the subpopulations. Like just because everyone coughs doesn't mean everyone has the flu, right? Some people have a cold, some people have a virus, et cetera. And so looking at um, the ways that identity um, and access to power shapes the way people experience problems, the causes of their problems, and also how uh, they need sort of relief from their problems delivered. So another place where policy usually fails uh, vulnerable communities is uh, service delivery, 
right? Uh, because when you have more power, you can essentially more power, more money. Money often equals power. Um, you can separate yourself, right? You can pay your way out of barriers. You don't, or you just don't need the program, right? You just don't engage with it. But the less money you have, usually you can't buy your way out of that. And so um, you'll see, and you see it a lot in, in welfare in particular, where the ways that people have to to access those services, which are usually in-person interviews, paper applications, et cetera, actually makes their everyday lives more difficult and actually will force people to not use those services. And sometimes that's intentional, right? If you want low uptake, you can design a policy with so many barriers to, to uptaking it that no one, no one wants to deal with it even when they need it. So I brought that approach. And then I also, I was trained as a qualitative researcher. I wanted to be a journalist for a long time. I actually wanted to be editor-in-chief of Vibe magazine. That was my one goal. <laughs> and then Vibe closed. And I was like, well, this dream is done. What will I do? <laughs> I was like, you could write for somewhere else. And I was like, why would I do that? Never. And so I, I still, though, really believed in, in stories and the ways that stories uh can both like move solutions to problems and make problems seem more real to people. Um, and also, I just really believe deeply that the knowledge that we can't we can't capture in numbers still matters. Right. It still matters. And often and it's just as real as knowledge that is quantifiable. Um, and so I was trained as a qualitative researcher. So a lot of our uh, policies on the Abdul campaign, we actually started from field work. So, like, for instance, our rural agenda, no one on our team had ever grown up in a rural area or really interacted with them on our policy team, which was just me as a full-time staffer and uh, some really enterprising interns. But even if one person had, that's not enough. Even if five of us had, it's not enough. So what we did is, like, we identified some key people from those areas. We talked to them. They helped us. One person in particular, shout out to Betsy, uh, helped us set up interviews. We did a bunch of phone interviews to figure out what are the problems that people had in their communities, because often it can vary from the literature. So one thing we found was that housing was a huge issue, which we didn't, affordable housing, which we did not know or expect. And then we also went up there. We went up to the UP and visited and, and did a focus group and visited family farm and a you know a local uh, farmers market just to really try to understand talk to as many people understand what was going on so that was the approach that I took which um, it was my first time running a policy shop I work for a bunch of people and it just seemed to me to make the most sense right why do we always why do policymakers always act like they know better and some are better they're lovely people in general but I feel like often as a field we act as though, the folks who use the policy somehow know the least, which mm. can't be true, right? Like they live it and often people have devised solutions to their own problems that can be scaled up or have valuable lessons. And so that's just the way that it made sense to me to run my shop and New Consensus was interested in that. And it's actually turned out to be really important, um, that approach, uh, because the resolution mandates that the Green New Deal is developed in democratic and participatory processes uh, that are representative. Let's talk about that then, the, the process. When I think about, I mean, I, I don't even have a, like a good folder system for my email. When I think about trying to sort of keep straight 
all these experts, all these areas of policy. I mean, there's like yeah. dozens of sub areas of policy yeah. involved in this. I mean, this is really like a comprehensive thing. So what is the process by which you try to synthesize this amount? I mean, like, for, who are you talking to and how do you decide who to talk to and how do you keep track of who you've talked to and what happens after you talk to them? Is there a spreadsheet? I'm, I'm envisioning a spreadsheet somehow. That's So, yes, we do keep track uh, through a spreadsheet. Uh, we take very good notes and calls that we compile. But that's that's the beginning. And how we identify people, there's like two criteria. For a one-on-one with anyone on our team, uh, there really is no criteria. If you want to talk to us, and as long as we have time in, in our schedule, we will talk to you. The Now that people are more people are interested, so we're figuring out a process around that, which will probably have to do with like, is there redundant knowledge? And I would love for us to develop some sort of um, public facing open sort of platform. It could be as simple as a Dropbox, although I'm sure it needs more security, where people, even if they can't talk to us, right, uh, directly can input their policy ideas. Now we're starting to start talking to experts and assembling them in groups. And so because you're bringing people into groups, the, the considerations are different. The real, the only criteria there are, one, are, are you on board with the scale, speed, and scope of the Green New Deal, especially to be in a room full of other people? people who want to talk about it, there it's just too distracting if you're like, well, I think this should be smaller in the first place. Like, we're past that discussion. Like, this isn't the time for that. If you want to have that discussion with me, you can just call me. So that, that's the main criteria. And then other than that, is there a willingness to sort of talk across difference? Because I actually, I heard someone the other day be like, we're all on the same team. But the truth is that not yet, not really. This is a lot of teams. I mean, these are this is a lot of areas of the economy. It's a lot of areas of the economy. And it's also we define expertise to not just be academics and policy wonks, but to be people in frontline communities, to be folks in businesses, to be people who are activists, who have real subject matter expertise because they run a an energy efficiency program. They train people in their community. They help create community solar gardens and lobby for net metering policies, et cetera, right? So there's actually a lot of expertise within particularly the environmental justice community. But these folks often don't talk to one another. And I've noticed, especially in environment, they stick to what they know, right? They don't want to necessarily move outside, which is totally fine. But that means that even within like this one audience, if you just consider wonks an audience, right, there's a ton of people that never talk to one another, right? And then you also have tensions between environmental justice and uh, sort of the larger environmental or climate movement uh, because of racism in that movement largely and because of a systemic sort of uh, lack of attention to environmental justice groups from funders and et cetera. So there's a lot of pain there. And so we are asking people to come together, talk to one another, right? Just don't don't just talk to us. Uh, the best solutions are going to come when you talk to one another. And I've seen it. I've been in, in a gathering that uh, we just had with a few folks and there were some folks from movement and some folks uh, who were more traditional experts, whether in government, we had some folks from business, some folks from the policy community talking about buildings. And just in that room, somebody would raise something and someone else would have a solution, right? Like that doesn't happen if you two are talking to me, 
right? Because then we have to try to like Frankenstein that solution together, right? But the fact is uh, those relationships take time. And that's one of the really the toughest things about this moment is because we have so little time, we have to ask people to be superhumanly generous. Yeah, that's what I, that was my next question is I can envision this open, deliberative process. And I love, you know, I love the idea of that. But then trying to also match that to the speed <laughs> that's required here, because the whole premise here is that this is basically a two year policy development process yeah. that's supposed to produce something for Democrats to run on in, in, in 2020. So two years is a incredibly compressed time frame to have all these consultations. So how do you balance kind of inclusivity and and just speed and efficiency? Yeah. And to be honest, like we are still working out our process because we have two audiences who want very different things like frontline communities because of historical trauma, right? There's a sense of ownership that they need and, and often in life deserve, right? A level of trust and a level of engagement. You can't just ask them to come to you. That's a basic logistical challenge, right? So they have needs. And then wonks and academics have a different set of needs, largely shaped by power, right? When you don't have that historical trauma, you don't necessarily need as much trust, you know, or even want as much trust, right? And also the ways that we socialize academics to be, you know, act as though emotion enters into their work, not at all, even though it's entirely powered by emotion, largely. I mean, who gets into climate to get rich? And so you have those. So for us, I think it's a question of of a multi-layered process and being very clear about the role new consensus itself plays. So in my dream world, Right. In my dream world, new consensus will. So there will be sort of processes that are multilayered that are happening at the same time that is giving us feedback. So on the one hand, in my dream, you have a frontline, a pretty extensive frontline community consultation. New consensus is small, so largely run by partners. Right. Uh, we use our expertise and my expertise as a qualitative researcher and the rest of our teams to design out field guides, to train up people how to do focus groups uh, and have standardized output so that we are getting their voices into our policy. Also, the way that we structure it, we're doing it in a way so that whatever feedback they are providing, we are getting on the subjects that we need to get them on. So uh, in my dream, the first thing that we ask them is a uh, friend, uh, Ben, calls them red lines and green lines. Red lines as in what cannot be in here, what is unacceptable. Green lines, what must be in here, right? And because that from that basic things, that at least gives us boundaries within which we can have folks uh, design policy. And then as we're picking out, you know, as legislative strategies emerge and if there's bills, particular bills that people want to get passed, or there are things that we are saying we have to figure out this particular issue or this particular area first, that we, because we are communicating about how to structure those question guides, we can have the consultations about, you know, topics that we have to work on right now. Say there's an agriculture bill um, that someone wants to pass or introduce as part of the Green New Deal. We know that in the rural communities, we're going to be asking about that bill. 
and maybe outside the rural communities, right? If we want people to start taking up agriculture jobs, et cetera. So that's one process. And then the second layer of that process would be there's all of these academic convenings, right, that are starting to happen around the Green New Deal where you're having experts and academics, uh, so wonks and academics sort of assembled. I would love to do something similar for them. Uh, these are different structures, but can you ask these questions and can you capture uh, what people are saying in this format, right, and feed it back to us? And then I think in new consensus, the third layer is um, a process, sort of an internal process where we have uh, advisory councils, working groups, et cetera, around particular issue areas. It could be the pr specific projects and the resolution or combining some. So like decarbonizing power in a smart grid is separate in the resolution. We might, you know, not keep them separate. But those groups, uh, along with someone at New Consensus, is working through um, through the policy and getting this input too. So we're saying these are the red lines and green lines and we're, you know, taking all the information and starting and designing out policy um, in that way. So and what's, the, what's the result? Uh, I mean, at the, at the end of the two years, is it a, is it a bill? Is it a omnibus set of bills? Or is it a series, like a staged series of bills? Or do you know yet what you want that to look like? Well, so... Internally from new consensus, right, um, our goal personally is to have a plan, right, a set of a Green New Deal plan that lays out in each of these project areas the policies that are there and basically says how you will do them. That's new consensus specific uh, as an organization. We also have legislative allies. And so the output depends a lot on their legislative strategy. Uh, there's no way this is going to be one bill. Like, yeah. that's not a real thing. Um, it will definitely be a series of bills. Now, how people want to structure it, some allies, I think, you know, people have different ideas in their offices about how they want to go about it. And then also to use whatever we come up with um, for candidates and also to work that into or push to work that into a presidential transition plan. So it's sort of three prong, like from new consensus. We don't like to think of it as a white paper because those are boring, but <laughs> uh, but essentially this like big, you know, all together, this is how you look at it as a system. Here's what will happen. There's also legislation. Call it a, ra a rainbow paper. A rainbow. It's a rainbow paper. Um, and then there's <laughs> legislation that is the contours of which are largely defined by legislators, but that we advise and support on. And then there's a presidential transition uh, that we're pushing. So those are sort of the three outputs that we see right now. Okay. In terms of parameters, let's talk about uh, targets because there's been a lot of a lot of confusion <laughs> about about this out in in the media. People keep saying that the Green New Deal targets total economy wide carbon neutrality by 2030, which would be utterly ludicrous, but is not in fact in the Green New Deal resolution. They keep saying it targets 100% renewable energy and excluding nuclear and all those other options it does not in fact no. do that so but but you're the you're the designer here the policy designer here so i want to know what you think about this like are there specific targets you are designing around like how do you interpret targets like what is what are the goals here the question of targets is a really interesting one to me the only targets that that I really think about in my own brain are emissions targets. Eventually, there could be some job 
like job creation targets. Uh, but until the policies are more worked out, you there's really not a great way to know that. But what emissions targets? The ones I think about mostly are the IPCC report uh, emissions targets, but obviously there are other ones. Um, but for us, I think part of the reason why I don't think about targets so much is because we're so far from talking about any of that. Like we're just not where we need to be to even mm. discuss a real emissions It is target. weird that people always want to start there. There's a real obsession about that topic yeah. among, I don't know why, it's like a proxy for something else. I can't really figure yeah, out why people are so Yeah, and I don't so know what it that. is either. But to me, the fact, it's enough to say we're going to, for 10 years, throw the entire might of this nation at the twin crises of climate change and income inequality, right? To then see, I mean, obviously, Targets have a role, and I think emissions targets are paramount. But of course, you can't just be talking about carbon emissions. You need to be talking about coal pollutants and GHG gases in general, because especially if you're talking about frontline communities, carbon is not the only thing making them sick. It might not even be the most important thing making them sick, right? Um, and so you have to be thinking about that. But honestly, we are just, what emissions target can we actually be talking about right now? Well, here's a specific one I want to ask you about then. I think it's very clear in the resolution's language that it is not targeting total economy-wide carbon neutrality no. by 2030. Obviously not. But there is, I think, some ambiguity about whether it is trying to decarbonize electricity in 10 years. In 10 years. Yes. When you're designing a plan, is that kind of a benchmark that you have in mind? It's not a benchmark. I definitely think about what sectors are easier to decarbonize than others because the fact is that if you're trying to push down emissions to the levels that we need them to go to, right, to descend to, it makes sense to think about, well, where can you get the most bang for your buck? Where can you get really decarbonize the most quickly so that you can eliminate those emissions and then you can be continuing to deal with your hard-to-abate sectors, industry, aviation, shipping, et cetera. And as far as going to net zero or or zero emissions electricity in 10 years. I mean, I think that's a fine target. And I certainly think that everything that we do will push us closer to that. But is that like the goal that's in my personal head? No. But do I think that we could get there or get incredibly close to there or that we should throw everything that we can at that in order to to get there as quickly as possible? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there is something a little silly about discussing how far you can get before you've tried to do anything, before you know what you're capable of, before you've even like exactly. built the institutional capacity. We're just like, we're all just guessing. What's the, you know, exactly. let's figure out. Let's let's work on it for a while and then we'll have a better sense, right? Of exactly. That's how I feel. It's like, it's weird to me to, and I think this happens so much in policy, where it's like you start with mechanism, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or... Or some specific target instead of sort of, I guess it's a bit of the, you can't see the forest for the trees. Um, because the fact is that, like, we don't have a comprehensive plan to decarbonize electricity at all. At all. <laughs> right? We don't have the funding in place. We, we still have so many energy governance issues to deal with. We need to figure out our grid. Right? Like, all of those things are much more important to me because if we can figure that out... Right. right. Like, and tangible. 
right? <laughs> like those are actual things. Yeah. And if we can figure that out, then you can decarbonize electricity, maybe in 10 years, maybe longer. But you have to figure that out. You can't get to decarbonizing electricity in 10 years or however long without dealing with those things first. So why don't we deal with the tangible things and put everything that we have behind that and just deal with with 10 years later? The other thing is that decarbonizing in 10 years, right, um, it ignores the fact that we are, yes, we are a nation, but we are made up of states, all of whom are closer or farther from that goal. And so setting a nationwide goal like that, you could create a lot of perverse incentives, right? You could create a lot of systems that don't work. Um, different states are at different places, and we have to deal with them in that way, right? And maybe a 10-year target makes more sense for California, right? Because the, the other thing about targets and the thing that I find so sort of frustrating about the GND is there's so much flexibility in how you can do things. It's not to say that there's not paths, that there aren't systems that you work within, et cetera, but it is to say that, like, a 10-year target, maybe you if, you, if you, if that's what you wanted to do, you could always do it for, like, the 10 states that emit the most, right? Isn't it like 10 states that make up 50% of emissions? And some of them, like California is like quite far. So like maybe it makes sense for those states and not, you know, states that are farther off. There's nothing saying that you have to set a national goal of 10 years or you, you can't look at the particular circumstances of an issue and then figure out timeline around that. So that's what I think about the most. It's just like, how will it work? Not necessarily like, what are these goals? But considering how what a hole we're in right now, how do we dig ourselves out of that hole is my first. Yeah, concern. honestly, like taking one sh one shovel full <laughs> is worth more to me than all the schematics yeah. <laughs> in the world at, at this point. Like, let's just do something. I'm so sick of talking talking about yeah all these long term lofty goals. We've been doing that for decades now. Let's just actually do some things. Yeah. That, so, and also like why, why my other thing about timeline is that I just think we have to have far more conversations with states, right? The idea that we would set a timeline from here, it's not, it's not crazy. It's certainly, uh, could be a very useful thing, but I'm just more interested in getting into the meat of it and also seeing, hearing from state governments what, what seems feasible or not. Because if people are so interested, which they always are, in getting this passed, and I am too, but um, resistance at the state level is also really important. I want to tackle square on the biggest, most common objection to the Green New Deal resolution as basically the media has been uh, uh, ridden with <laughs> with with white wonks <laughs> complaining that the Green New Deal conjoins climate policy and all these, you know, what are sort of derisively known as a liberal wish list, which is, you know, the jobs guarantee, health care, unions, support for unions, housing, all that other stuff. So sort of so a lot of people, I think, with varying degrees of sincerity, a lot of people really have trouble telling themselves the story of why these two things belong together. So, so many people are curious about that. So many people want to know. So what is your sort of what's your answer for why we're why the Green New Deal puts carbon policy next to these social and economic policies? 
Well, I have like a few answers to that, but the two main ones, there's a sort of data-based argument and a, and a moral um, historical argument. Um, and I always like to start with morality. I used to start with uh, science um, and data, but honestly, um, as a, I'll be very frank, as a black woman, often having to explain to white people, usually white men, why equity matters, starting with the science argument started to make me feel less than human. Connecting these two, right? Um, I used to have asthma as a kid. I grew up on the south side of Chicago in Inglewood. Um, you know, it's the hood. It's Well, it's my hood, at least. Um, and I had asthma, and it wasn't until recently I was like, how close did I live to a power plant? You know, because my, mm. a 70 I think over 70 percent of of black people in the U.S. live within 30 miles of a coal fire power plant. So I was like, did I have asthma? Because when I left, I didn't have asthma anymore. And so in some ways, starting with the science just made me feel like I was arguing for my own humanity, like why people like Trying me to prove and my family <laughs> shouldn't be left behind. <laughs> right. Um, it right. was so so from a moral standpoint. Yeah. So from a moral standpoint, I think it's quite clear like I said, 70 plus percent of black people in the U.S. live near uh, 30 miles from a coal fired power plant. Uh, something like 80 plus percent of Latinos live in an area with an air quality violation. Um, and the list just goes on. And so these are people, I mean, and I think of coal miners too, these are people whose body, who have lost their bodies, their lives sometimes for fossil fuels, right? For our reliance on fossil fuels. They are the place where they live in the communities where we put power plants. They live in the communities where we put oil refineries. And they are the ones who we allow to get sick and die from it. And to then turn around and ask them to bear the brunt of the transition to uh, clean energy I don't see how that's acceptable on any level. And I say bear the brunt because a lot of the same areas that have suffered um, from fossil fuels could easily, say, be priced out of distributed solar, right, which could bring down their energy bills, right? These are the same communities, deindustrialized communities, right? These are—I live in Michigan, right? The same communities that, you know— are struggling now and struggled after the factories, you know, some of the auto factories or, you know, auto-related factories were closed, are the same communities that will be really rocked by the switch to electric vehicles, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because the parts yeah, of electric vehicles— a lot of, of these communities vehicles, are, dependent, are dependent on fossil fuel— Economies. I mean, a lot of them. A lot of them will be hurt if fossil fuels are are reduced. Right, and fossil fuel economies in far broader ways than we usually talk about them. Right, we usually say think of coal miners, but there's also folks who work at gas plants, et cetera, um, and so or oil and oil plants. And so the idea that we would do this transition on on their backs is just abhorrent. Right, and also the historical knowledge is the fact that we always leave equity behind. We always. Say we can deal with it later. And I, as a black person, it don't happen. Are we still waiting, <laughs> right? Like we're still waiting. Um, and so this idea that you can unlink the two and then leave that problem, which now, which used to be a big problem and now is completely raced, 
right, as a black problem and then or a or a Latino problem or a problem for people of color and then expect that to pass is also really confusing to me because the same folks who will talk to me about how hard climate policy is to pass will not talk to me about how hard welfare policy is to pass. They won't talk to me about how hard it is to have uh, inclusive and supportive employment policies, especially for returning citizens, folks coming back from prison, right? There's this idea that climate is this, like, special animal, right, that's hard to pass. And- well, I, I think the idea is that it's hard. It's, it's hard to pass. The other things are hard to pass. And if you put them together— they're doubly hard to pass. I think that's the sort of the like what motivates the objection. And I get that. But also what we've seen is that we've linked them together. And now climate change is one of the what is it within the top six issues and sometimes the second issue that voters are saying they're interested in. And that's not all us. It's also a a moment where climate-related disasters are becoming more frequent and people are connecting it to climate change in a way that they haven't before. But all of these together are actually motivating people to be interested. And the other thing that I'll mention, too, is that uh, the folks who are most affected by environmental justice issues, those same voters are also more likely to be interested or uh motivated around climate change. Uh, But they're honestly just too broke to care, right? They (laughs) understand it and they know that it's an issue. But if you're talking about how do I feed my family? How do I, you know, get childcare assistance? How do I, et cetera, like climate change, until you understand that it's one of the things that helps cause your baby's asthma, might not be something that you're ready to move on or vote on. And so I think that there's a real power building element uh, to that. And now the scientific reason, right, um, right, there's a data that is increasingly showing that, especially in rich countries, income inequality increases emissions. Now, they're not really sure of the mm. mechanism, right? There's there's arguments about power that the people who are cause the most uh, emissions are the least likely to be affected by climate change or be able to separate themselves from it. And therefore, they don't care as much, et cetera. Or there's all these questions about mechanisms, but there is data to support that. And it was so funny because I was talking to someone from NASA the other day, and she was actually like, the next time someone asks you why uh, climate change and equity should be linked, tell them to talk to me. Like we have been saying this forever. And it's partially because climate change also fuels all sorts of other uh, social breakdowns, which are exacerbated by income inequity and, and scarcity of resources. And in turn, those conflicts, when they break out, also help to increase climate change because no one cares, right, about climate change when you're in the midst of a war or trying to come back from the aftermath of, say, the flooding in Iowa and Nebraska, right? Like, those are now real issues. Those are folks who might never have their farms again, right? Um, And it's connected to climate change, and I think some folks understand that. But imagine if that was happening on a larger scale, and now you're trying to have these conversations. How? How? Where? Why? And so equity, I think the links are you know, it's also like so much about our extractive economy and so many other ideas that I think for a long time have not been taken seriously. Right. And so I think the other the other reason that uh, conversations about equity and climate, the questions come up is because there's a long history of literature about how climate change is is 
the result of colonialization and extractive um, extractive economies that focus on growth. Uh, regardless of sort of the effects, um, and and particularly indigenous communities and, and communities of color and environmental justice groups have been talking about these ideas for a long time, but it's not like they're necessarily mainstream or with uh, the kinds of folks who ask me those questions. So it's also, again, about what knowledge we respect and take seriously and what knowledge we don't. Let's talk about, okay, so I think one of the other reasons I think the Green New Deal has sort of freaked people out or freaked, let's say, the traditional climate wonk community out a little bit is um, it's been sort of talked about or or advanced as sort of extremely liberal, kind of very leaning on the New Deal side of this. So there's been, you know, just a lot of talk and emphasis about big public investments, big public job programs, sort of the infrastructure, the sort of big putting the federal government to work. And, you know, before this, probably like the decade before this, the democratic climate policy conversation has been very much focused on kind of the <laughs> the unfriendly way to put it is sort of neoliberal solutions, sort of market tweaks and mm-hmm. and and performance standards and and, you know, sort of uh, carbon pricing, sort of more market oriented stuff. And I think a lot of kind of conventional climate wonks have been kind of put back by this what seems like a huge lurch or shift away from the direction they've been moving in. So so my question is sort of a do you think that's accurate? How far is what you're envisioning from the sort of conventional democratic climate policy approach? And two, is there a place in the Green New Deal in your mind for these sort of uh, conventional tools that that wonks are so attached to, like carbon pricing and subsidies for existing nuclear plants and performance standards and all this sort of boring workaday stuff? How should we think about the, the, the sort of relationship between that approach and this new approach? How far apart are they? The Green New Deal embraces, obviously, an economic thesis that says that the public sector has a role in innovation, it has a role in markets, and that it has a large role to play in investing in industries and helping to sustain them and helping to sort of build demand for technologies that we will need in order to transition off of fossil fuels. That doesn't mean that market-based mechanisms don't have a role in that. It's much more about renegotiating the power relationships between the public and the private so that right now the public sector is sort of, I would refer to it, it's kind of like a mom where you're like, um, you stand, you're there, you're expect, the public sector is expected to stand back, right, to just regulate market failures and to then, but when everything goes bad, to step in and bail out, right? <laughs> and right. so it's a really unequal uh, partnership, really, a partner, or it's a really a unequal relationship. Yeah, exactly. Don't speak. Stand back, <laughs> yeah. make the meals, and then when when inevitably something goes wrong, come and fix it all. But then return <laughs> right. back to where you were. And that's not a relationship that, that works or is functional. I think we're seeing that bear out. And so all we're saying is that, in fact, the public sector allows markets, right? It creates the rules within markets play. And if it didn't, then there would not be so much interest in controlling it. <laughs> Right when it comes to the market. That is where I say, like, 
we take markets seriously. And so I actually just had a conversation about with someone about consumer choice and how that could push forward um the uptake in renewables. And he was of the opinion that that was really the only thing that was needed. Obviously, I am not. But that doesn't mean that consumer choice is not a valid part of that, right? Like, we wouldn't have to have something this big if we had started earlier. But we're also just in a place where market solutions alone will simply not work, right? And that's just a fact. I think I always refer to, uh, I think it was Dave Weigel tweeted about how he asked the IPCC um a scientist the day after they released the report, the report, um, if market-based solutions were enough, and they just laughed. <laughs> yes, although there are still people who very much very believe much that believe in, that in the U.S. Uh, uh, yeah, community. but the other reason I think that um, so they're not incompatible, and markets have a role. And so a lot of what I actually think about at New Consensus is not public versus private, but like where are markets useful? Where is competition going to drive things forward? Where do we need that? How do we want those markets to operate? Um, and are there additional boundaries that we want to make those we want to uh, put around those markets? And what are goods that the market cannot deliver or will not deliver? Right. Whether because largely because of the profit incentives and therefore, what does the public sector need to do there in order to provide that good or that service? Um, and I think the other thing that I think about a lot is that there is so much so we obviously at New Consensus are comfortable with a muscular public sector, but I also think just in the context of deep decarbonization, I don't really understand how you have a conversation about getting to a net zero economy without the public sector, because you're talking about a transformation that is going to fundamentally not only change everything in terms of just sort of how we get energy and and all of the effects around electricity, et cetera, but is going to change the jobs that are available and the work that people have to do are going to have incredible workforce effects. There is no private entity that's going to retrain workers for free, right? There's no private entity that's going to provide health care for someone who wants to move outside of their state and therefore outside of their network, right? There's no private entity right now that is going to, you know, provide some sort of stopgap coverage. So a mother who either has a chronic illness herself or who has a child with a chronic illness can transition off of Medicaid, right? And into a good paying job, all of these jobs that are opening up because otherwise they would have to have such comprehensive medical insurance that it's, it's out of their realm, right? These are things that the public sector can do that the private sector is not interested in. These are either not lucrative markets or there are markets where you want fair and equal access, which is often sort of hindered by having a profit motive. And so when you are just going to affect so many people in a way uh, that's unprecedented, or at least in recent imagination, I don't understand how the market is going to deal with that. Also, in a, in, in a moment where Americans across the board are clamoring for better working conditions, better wages, and really deeply saying that employers have far too much power and workers have far too little, 
if the public sector does not intervene in that, that is not a dynamic that will change. And it's a dynamic right now that we know is unsustainable. Hearing that referred to as as a wish list or like some sort of like dreamy thing that liberals just sit around thinking about, like a like a candy cane on a Christmas tree or something is so fucking insulting to me. I'm so sick of hearing that. Like It's really insulting. And it's also troubling that the fact that Serious climate policy, we think that, or at least some folks out in the world think that serious climate policy does not have to reckon with economic or workforce effects in a way that is on the same footing as decarbonization, right? Less Like, yes, emissions, um, climate change will be horrible. It will kill us all, but it will kill some people sooner, first of all. And then second of all, that's not the only way people die, right? And also not just physically die, but emotionally die or have their lives shrunk so much by poverty that they are not allowed to be the people that they wish that they could be, right? Or that their children can have the opportunities to be people that they are not currently allowed to be or that they don't know how their children will get there, right? Um I just don't understand how any policy that doesn't actually reckon with those larger system-wide effects can be taken seriously, right? It's this idea that you can sort of divorce the two and and that it could be siloed. It's a very economist-y uh, uh, way of thinking about things. It like, is. oh, wait, those are those are separate models. Those are separate spreadsheets. You can't yeah. be mixing my spreadsheets. Right. But so many people experience, like most people, that's something that I found really interesting coming into the climate world, is that I talk a lot about the climate crisis and climate change, but very few people, like I try to think of the number of times I, ex I experience something as purely climate change. Right. right, like right, you right. know, like what does that zero, mean? Does zero that times mean like is the a, answer to that. Yeah, is that like a hot day? Is that like a heavy <laughs> rainstorm? Exactly. Right, and so people are going to experience climate change, and the thing that's going to make them most upset about climate change, besides the health effects, are the economic effects. People are going to experience, like, like I said, those farmers in Iowa and Nebraska—they're not experiencing climate change as just the rain. They're experiencing climate change as the end of a whole way of life for them. Right. If their farms close, they're experiencing climate change as the loss of animals that they were going to sell to provide for their families. A lot of what you envision involves a much bigger, more active, more muscular role for the government, for the public sector. If you're going to sell people on a plan that involves a much more muscular and active public sector, you have to reassure people that the public sector has the capacity and the, the sort of institutional capacity to do it right that that not only that we want government to do more but that government can do it well and 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 cost effectively because you know like notoriously it costs a lot of money and takes a long time for us to build anything here transmission lines mm -hmm. subways high speed rail we're just our public sector seems a little bit sclerotic and inefficient and a little bit bloated and so you know what do you say to people who say well if you just spend a bunch more public money you're just going to get a bloated inefficient public sector wasting a lot of money and you're going to sort of blow your public goodwill and sort of how do you deal with the 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 question of not just more or less government but good effective government. Yeah. So it's so funny that uh, you mentioned uh, bloated public uh, 
or government, because the fact is, I think a lot of the problems people see are because of underfunding of government. Right. Yes. Uh, we true. have. So it's this really interesting thing about um, I'm going to sound like a real leftist late stage capitalism, um, <laughs> but it's a really interesting thing about I have a moment. buzzer that I'm going to use if you <laughs> <laughs> there's, this, <laughs> there's this really we're in this really interesting moment with uh, late stage capitalism where so income inequality and poverty increases the amount of services that people need. Right. Um, because. One, they can't participate on the market anymore. And so when people can't participate in the market, they fall out and they fall on the public sector. And then at the same time as we've sort of been increasing needs, we have also been reducing revenue. So you are creating more problems for a public sector to do and then starving it of the resources to deal with those problems and then going, why is it inefficient? <laughs> You're like, well, and, and let's also at least make note of the 40-year concerted conservative yes. propaganda campaign to convince America that the, that the public sector is useless and bloated and inefficient and et cetera. Right. Um, and so I actually think what you see is, a, is an overstressed, underfunded uh, public sector that largely people get upset with because it doesn't have the resources to provide the goods that are required um, or that people need. Um, and so I think th there's a couple things there. Um, so I think the first is more resources. So one of the things that I, f I find really exciting about the Green New Deal is that it's actually modeled on a lot of state and local policies, um, and it's about scaling those up. And so we're actually seeing that states and localities are the, the and those, the governments in those areas are the ones that are being really creative and working hard to solve these problems and doing so in some really smart ways. Um, so I would just learned about like, I think it was in Baltimore, uh, but it might have been Maryland as a state had this program where they were doing energy efficiency upgrades, uh, but they also connected it to like lead remediation and structural issues. And those usually the way that that happens if you're a low income household is that you have to apply for those three different programs. Right. You have which all have different timelines when they get back to you. And it's very difficult to coordinate the work between them. But Baltimore took it upon itself and expended a lot of effort um, because those are all generally funded by different streams of, of federal money or state money to streamline that and make it a one stop shop. So residents could go and they would sort of coordinate the application processes and then help coordinate um, the delivery of those services. And that's that's just one example I've heard that across the country. And so, in fact, I think that folks would be I think a, a lot of people would actually be um, surprised um, if if given the resources, what uh, particularly state and local governments can do and the ingenuity that they will have. And then I, I get why people sort of could say, well, the public sector can't do much well. But the fact is that like agencies, although Trump seems to be doing the best he can <laughs> to stop that, agencies are still sites of expertise, right? They're still sites of some of the best thinkers to solve these problems. And they still have access to not only budgets and prestige that help them continue to work with the best thinkers, particularly outside of government, but that are well positioned to also understand the systems that they are 
responsible for are situated in and how to change those. So I think there's an element of giving folks the resources that they need, allowing and supporting ingenuity and experimentation, which I think can also um, open up some of those those doors and the the things that people respond to, the things that people are afraid of going wrong with public sector involvement. But also, I think you also, because you'll be designing for these like new goals, you could also see some like streamlining and government made more efficient in places where it needs to be made more efficient. I'm thinking a lot about the grid, right? And the mm. ways that we do energy governance now oh and the ways God, that a, a nightmare. Yeah, exactly. And the ways that a smart grid, particularly if you're talking about a national uh, grid or uh, the will force us to really think about our governance structures and do they match the problems that we're trying to solve. And so I also think that the Green New Deal and being so comprehensive also opens up space to think about uh, to think and rethink about how we are governing particular systems so that they are more streamlined and more efficient and uh, the governance structure is more responsive to crises, is more flexible, et cetera. Another big pushback that is very common or at least uh, one of the sort of uh, discussions that is dominating these days is the perennial question of how to pay for it uh, and there's um, you know there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion about modern monetary theory this sort of uh, economic theory about about how governments work and how government revenue works and so I'm just sort of wondering, how you think about that whole constellation of topics. A, how central is modern monetary theory to this whole thing? Is it part of it or just a an adjunct? Or, or how much should we be worrying about how to pay for this? Do you lose a lot of sleep over it? So like, how do you think about that question? Uh, I think about it in two ways. I think when how to pay for it is actually, there's a question of how to finance it, which is money. And how to pay for it in terms of people and real resources. And by and large, the people and real resources is the question that keeps me up, not the finance. Right? There's enough mm. capital in the world. <laughs> uh, like, the like, let's be honest. The world is awash in capital. It doesn't yeah. mean that, you know, it's not that we don't have it. Looking um, for places, looking for places to go. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like looking for exactly. places to invest. Exactly. So um, so to me, between, like you said, the, the capital that's waiting to invest and the, and the public sector and the multiple ways, particularly at the federal level, that you can um, generate revenue or support innovation, whether through green banks that sort of match public and private capital together, et cetera. I think you actually have a lot of ways to crack that nut. Um, And also the things that people are most concerned with, uh, say like inflation, we also know not necessarily everything, but we have a good ideas about how to control for that and to deal with that issue. And so um, now how do you train and retrain uh, and engage and re-engage <laughs> a really fractured workforce, right? Uh, particularly um, for jobs that will require skills that we either don't do well teaching in certain schools, right? Or re-engage people that have fallen out of the workforce, et cetera, that now that is a very difficult issue, particularly because we don't mm. have a functional workforce development system in this country. Um, yeah, I was going to ask earlier, actually, like uh, the the history of 
you know, Democrats going way back to Clinton have have always talked about job retraining as this sort of magic solution. And, no. and, and, and those programs have a pretty poor record yes. on on the ground. Absolutely. Is that how, how how do you get around that? Well, I'm I'm encouraged because one thing that people don't think about a lot in World War II is that they also had to train a lot of workers. I don't know if the divides in terms of education and skills were as large um, or the leaps uh, to do the types of work or necessarily as as large. Right. Um but they're still they were teaching people how to do manufacturing from lots of different areas. And they did actually develop a a training protocol, I'm forgetting the name, that actually people still use today. Um, it's become like this like management system. And so because of the fact that there's a lot of local knowledge about how to do workforce development, uh, particularly if you're devolving or like looking at the local level, I think between that and resourcing it correctly. The reason I'm not super, I am very concerned about workforce development, but beyond the fact that we managed to do it on World War II, it's also that our system is not necessarily that we don't know how to do a lot of things. It's that the connections that would allow a, a coherent pipeline are broken. Right. It's fragmented. We have nonprofits doing this over here. We have community colleges doing some of this over here. We have private entities doing something over here. So there's knowledge about how to do this. And there are models, particularly at nonprofit and local levels, about how to do it effectively. Yes. Now, the state, the government does not have a great track record in doing um job training and job retraining. And so for me, I think like if we can harness local ingenuity and find promising models and scale them up, I think we'll be okay. The sort of signal characteristic of U.S. politics in the last several decades has been increasing uh, polarization and, and sort of consequently this process of swinging back and forth uh, in governance, in everything else is very and subsequently these sort of vertiginous shifts in policy. And so we have before us recently a great example of Obama sort of painstakingly assembling these climate policies, not just climate policies, lots of policies, and, and them just kind of being blown away by a new regime taking power. Not all of them blown away, but a lot of them blown away, a lot of them damaged or delayed or, or diminished. Um, so how, given I don't see polarization necessarily fading anytime soon, so how in those circumstances do you design policies that are are durable and that can weather these political swings back and forth. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple ways. The ways that I think at least a lot of people, particularly Dem, traditionally think about it is bipartisanship. The sort of Dem, the standard, you know, Dem theory of durable policy is bipartisanship. I think there's an alternative model that we don't talk about a lot, which is public support. Design something that people understand that has a clear benefit for their life and that they come to rely upon, and they are very loath to give that up. So what comes to mind a lot for me is Social Security. How many times have people tried to privatize Social Security? How many times is it on the chopping block? All the time. Why does it not go away? Because seniors and the people who support them do not let it go away, right? Because the AARP is... <laughs> 
always ready. Though they really never stop trying, do they? They really never stop trying. It's a, it's, it's no, amazing. No, but you notice that now it's much more of a signal, right? It's a political signaling more than an actual priority. And so I think you saw it with ACA, too. I mean, people hated Obamacare, but they did appreciate the way that it had brought down their premiums. But they came to rely upon it. It provided a good that they needed, right? And so I think too often parties change, people don't. Right. Right? Partisanship is there, but people, especially now— there seems to be quite a coalescence about what people care about and the changes that they want. Um, and so I think the one of the keys to durable policy and one of the reasons why we are trying to do such an inclusive consultative process is because you want to minimize, for all of these particularly, um, because they're so important, we really need to minimize unintended negative second-order effects particularly mm. on particular populations, either populations that if it hurts them will not come out uh, to support right. it or populations who are particularly vocal, who if you hurt them, they will hurt you. And so that's that's something that we think about a lot because we think that in this moment where like bipartisanship seems to be a distant memory and not coming back anytime soon and to get something to stay, people need to understand it. They need to feel connected to it. And it needs to be something that works for their lives, not just in the overall uh, benefit, but in how the service, uh, the good is delivered, right, in a way that is efficient, causes them not too many problems, et cetera. I guess what troubles me is I totally get the story about how policy wants it is delivering benefits to people, <laughs> yes. right? How do you get it digs through? It, digs yeah. itself in, but how do you pass it? Because, I mean, the the communications environment we're in is is, if anything, more polarized than than politics. There's a whole class. There's a whole half of the country that's basically, or not half, thirty five percent. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Depends on how pessimistic you are about it. But has basically hived off into its own information environment. So how? I mean. You can't convince them of anything because you have no access to them. Do you know what I mean? So how do you create people power to get things passed? Yeah, you don't have. Well, I think that's actually the role of organizing. You don't have access to them over the airwaves, maybe, or in media, but you can still knock on somebody's door and talk to them. <laughs> right. And right. it's it's a very like quaint idea. I know people are like, OK, yeah, sure. But the fact is, right, <laughs> when you do have this kind of intransigence, you just have to come up with different solutions, right? And one of them is how do you access people in a way that actually gives you access? And I think that's the role of organizing, especially because these ideas, right, whether about job creation, a Green New Deal in general, they poll well among the Republican base, at least the Green New Deal. And I think it's about messaging. It's about getting in front of people um, and building and connecting, allowing people to see how this will benefit them, right? And then ideally, they create pressure on their representatives, Democratic or Republican, to support it. And I know that that's a lead, it can sound a little idealistic and a little easy, but we don't really have that many other avenues right now. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, let's of, just be yeah. honest. Like, it's not ideal. Is it the most efficient? No. Do I wish we could do it differently? Yes. But this is what we got right now. This is the cards, the 
uh, hand of cards we've been dealt and we got to play it. So it. let's <laughs> take it down from that sort of lofty uh, political yeah. level to a more sort of tangible short term political level, which is, um, you know, obviously nothing's going to pass in the next two years. What I mean, just your sort of uh, cynical political observer would say, look, even if Democrats take the presidency, they take the House, even if they take the Senate, as long as the filibuster is in place. That's it. There's nothing. Nothing's going to pass. You know, we're just going to go back to these sort of Obama status quo. So what pathway do you see? Like, what do you think is necessary? What pathway do you see to actually, you know, hallelujah, passing a piece of legislation in the 2020 to 22 session? Like, what do you think needs to happen? How do you get past the filibuster? How do you get past all these institutional barriers that are immediately before us. Right. Um, and this is assuming we cannot eliminate the filibuster. Right. Are we assuming that? I'm not assuming okay, that. Okay, then get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> Hallelujah. Yay. No, I think, well, I think that we have to have an honest conversation with ourselves. Um, I actually struggle with questions like this because to me, like filibuster, all of that is mutable compared to climate crisis. These are all systems that can be changed. And I know that sounds really easy and I don't assume that it will be easy, but I also don't think we have any other choice. We are unfortunately in a moment that's asking us all to be superhuman and to reimagine our world at a speed that we that is not normal. And I think that we just have to have to deal with that. And so I think we have to eliminate the filibuster. We need a really strong president who's going to to push on this and to really work with God willing, the Democratic Party and all the houses, all the leadership to put this forward. I think we also have to be willing and ready to have alternatives, right? Not that conservatives want and not that we introduce, but should that become a an issue that they won't move on, that we can understand how do you design that to still keep equity at the center at best as it can, right? So it doesn't become a you know, a no yes fight, but you have some, and obviously you don't lead with that, nor is that our purpose and nor is that, you know, things that I'm excited to design. But I think that that's a reality of when that gets there, we should, you know, be able to have those, those conversations, have a plan B, don't lead with it. But I think whoever um, is in office and the legislators um, there need, need to, need to be ready for that. It's going to be a hard road, but I just think that the institutional barriers like uh, the filibuster, obviously, smart legis legislative design um, is necessary because so many of these bills will have to go through multiple committees. So I think there has to also be a really deep understanding of the inside game, right, which isn't isn't necessarily I understand a lot of it, but it isn't my forte. I've always been sort of on the outside. Um, but I know I'm, I'm in deep conversations with a lot of legislative directors who are looking hard at the structures in place and trying to figure out what can pass and how do we structure it and how do we take some of these ideas and split them up in different types of legislation or get some things into a bill that's already going to pass, you know, like an infrastructure bill so you don't have to have such a heavy lift with all of them, right? All of these different strategies that they are devising and that we are supporting them in. So you you were um, kind of thrown into this <laughs> or, or landed in this and, and sort of like were thrown into the deep end. Just to sort of wrap things up, like what in your experience of all this so far, 
We all know there are plenty of reasons for pessimism. I myself am something of a Wikipedia on on uh, on the subject of uh, reasons for pessimism. But what have you encountered so far that has made you optimistic in in your in, in all this? I think I think there's a couple of things. One is seeing how brilliant people are and how many of them are out here who have been thinking about these issues for a long time and have just an encyclopedia of knowledge about how to go about things and and how to address some of these problems, which brings me a lot of comfort because it helps remind me that it's not for a lack of knowledge, right, or a lack of trying. Um, it's really how do we match that knowledge with the political will. Um, and then the other thing is I have just seen people, like I said, extend superhuman amounts of generosity and grace um, to me and other people in this work. So I'm I'm just thinking in particular, um, I was at a meeting recently where there was an, an activist who had actually been essentially sworn enemies <laughs> with another attendant. And the attendant had been in government. They were in, in activism. And they had a moment where they spoke to each other and the activists explained what the issue was, how they were affected. And the person who had run that program said, I had no idea, right? And now they're going to visit and they are sort of interfacing. Right. And they sat next to each other the whole meeting and they were talking about sort of how the program could be restructured and whatnot. And that gives me hope because those th that sounds like a really small, sappy example. But for them to be able to talk like that and to acknowledge that both of them were human beings, right, who were making decisions in particular institutional contexts meant that they had to set aside a lot of trauma, a lot of ego, a lot of like negative past history to do that. And they did that because they both recognized that this is a process that requires all of us um, and that we don't have a, we might very well not have a second shot at. And so I've just continued, I mean, and it's real. And I've just continued to see people try so hard. I've seen researchers who never would touch a political thing ever before step out and offer the resources of their institutions, right? I've seen, you know, white men who are usually used to talking try very hard to sit and listen, right, to frontline oh community God. members. Yes. <laughs> and to the point that at the end they were like, I realize that I take up a lot of space, but I'm trying to learn how not to wow. do that. Right. You're going to change everything. You're really going to change everything <laughs> well, in this process. I don't think it's us changing things. I think despite what we often see on TV, and it's not like I think that people are always good or inherently good, but I think there are a lot of people who are recognizing that this is not, as my mom likes to say, a do-over moment, that this really might be it, and that nobody, excuse my French, nobody's bullshit can stand in the way. Right. Like, no, no. And will this bullshit matter when our shoes are melting to the concrete because of wildfires? <laughs> no, it won't. Right. right. And and I think that I've just seen people really try so hard to be of use that that gives me a lot of hope, because I think that's the only thing we can talk about all these barriers. And this is going to sound again, really, I'm kind of a touchy feely like Mother Earth type, if you can't figure it out. But I also just think that 
at the end of the day, love and not as a, a fuzzy thing, but love is a political action. Love is a commitment, right? To see each other and to care for ourselves and to extend grace. That is the only thing that's going to get us through this moment. And that's the only thing that's going to allow us to have these discussions and to also have the willingness to change some of these structures and to really say, are what's more important, these systems or these people? And to just decide. Amen to all that. That sounds like uh, a great place to stop. As a, as a final thing, uh, uh, Ezra always likes to finish this by asking for three book recommendations. What three books uh, about this or maybe not about this would you recommend to our listeners? Well, I think that this is quite a heavy time. So I recommend at least one not about this. And my recommendation in that sense is anything by Jillian Flynn. <laughs> Um, and then I think in terms of this, um, something that I found really, uh, Mariana Mazzucato. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think the entrepreneurial state is a really great, very um, easy to understand entrance into thinking about the role of the state in innovation and the ways that the state has often been silent about uh, the investments that it wakes and the ways that that uh, transforms our economy. So I think that that yeah. is a really great one. And then Fear Itself by Ira Katz Nelson, which is all about uh, the New Deal and the role of race and um, and how it was constructed and the role of Southern Democrats, which I think is just a really good sort of not only history of the New Deal, but a really good introduction to thinking about how policy design is often not actually about efficiency of systems, but about power and about supporting existing power relationships that are based on white supremacy and other things. So I think it's just a really good view into how um, policy designs and, and political maneuvering work to create systems that we think of now as not perfect, but sort of descended from the heavens uh, or based on just what is objectively the best thing and how that is often actually, especially in our country and our history, not the case. Rihanna Gunn-Wright, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you to Rihanna for being here. We have a small favorite ask of you. As we're constantly trying to improve this podcast, we want to hear from you. We put together a short audience survey to help us understand what you like about the show or what you think could be better. It takes no more than five minutes, and we would really appreciate the feedback. So with that, thank you for listening. Thank you to our producer and engineer, Jeff Geld, and thanks to Ezra for this chance to host. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and Ezra himself will resume his hosting duties in a couple of days. 